Welcome back, everybody, to the OIS Retina podcast. Again, this is Faras Rahal, a partner at Retina Vitreous Associates in Los Angeles and partner at Excite Ventures Centered in New York, uh, your host. And I'm delighted today to have a very close personal friend of mine as the guest, also a brilliant guy who also practices with me part-time, uh, Dr. Alex Walsh. Alex is on in his capacity among other things, as CEO and founder of Envision Diagnostics. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about that. But again, to the point, Alex is also still a part-time practicing medical retina specialist, uh, full transparency here in LA with us at Retina Vitreous Associates. Welcome, Alex, and thank you for coming to the program. Thanks for the invitation, Craig. And for us, it's, it's good to be here. Uh, nice to actually be on the podcast that I've listened to before. I'm glad you've listened. I, I'll take your private critiques later. I didn't know you were listening, but I'm glad to hear it. Um, so a little background on you that I'll, I'll go into, and then I want to hear about, you know, those early days with you and your early part of your career, but uh, your, your training and background, uh, BS in mechanical engineering from Stanford and MD from Columbia University, uh, what, what those of us who've been in New York for many years call PNS. Uh, no one says Columbia there. They all say PNS, as you know. Uh, residency at the Wilmer Eye Institute and a fellowship at the Doheny Eye Institute, which at the time was part of USC. Uh, Alex, your parents were obviously very disappointed. You're quite an underachiever. Uh, how did they ever make it through those really terrible institutions? Well, I always said I wanted to go back to California, but you know, I kept moving away and then I finally <laughs> made it back. And my wife and I didn't plan on staying in LA, but we stayed for 17 years. So it wasn't too hard of a decision. We're, we're glad you did. You then right out of training, I think, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, joined the full-time faculty at USC. That's when I got to know you as a full-time faculty member. And in those early days, let's get right into some of the things you were doing. You have a ton of experience in OCT and the engineering of OCT. I know that's what some of the work you were doing at USC. Can you give us some of the history around this work that you were doing at USC at that time, uh, right out of fellowship, or maybe it started while you were a fellow? Well, it, it's interesting to think back and it, it's ancient history, but, you know, when I was a resident, I had a, one of the faculty members at my institution tell me that OCT was the crutch for the weak clinician. So I, we had no OCT training um, in, during residency because that was the days of OCT1 and OCT2. So when I came out to Doheny, they actually had an OCT1 device that was sitting in the back room nobody used, but that was right as OCT3, the Stratus OCT was coming out. And that immediately distinguished itself because, you know, not only could we measure macular holes nicely, but I think that the real thing that, that sold me on it was vitreomacular traction. I saw a ton of patients that had unexplained vision loss, and you could clearly see in the OCT that vitreomacular traction. I think a, a, a good clinician looking very closely might have seen something similar, but it was great. That was a diagnosis that really was born out of the OCT era and convinced me that OCT was going to be the way forward for macular disease. Um, so that was, you know, 2003. And then in 2005, um, Topcon actually approached me because uh, they were trying to develop a, their, their first spectral domain OCT instrument. And David Wong was also working at USC Doheny on a spectral domain instrument. So we actually had a, a group of uh, early spectral domain OCT prototypes at Doheny, um, which was wonderful because that's what I did a lot of work on. It sold me on the technology and also allowed me to 
get early on gain a better understanding of the benefits of high-speed OCT and spectral domain OCT. And, and I just transitioned all of my research emphasis right towards that because it was so obvious it was going to take over. So it was clear to you it was going to be very important. Did, did you already know at that early stage of your career, you were planning a full-time academic career right out of fellowship, or did this sort of evolve because of some of this work? Well, I was a, my father's a academic physician, was a sort of lifelong chairman, and I assumed that I would be an academic physician for my whole career. So when I first started this, I never had any idea that this, that I would leave academic medicine to do this. I thought this would be the focus of academic research. And it wasn't until the fall of 2007 when, um, I, you know, I, I was working on retinal screening at the time, because as you know, in LA, we have a, a population of patients that are, that are underserved and overworked. And these people don't come in to see us until they have bilateral vitreous hemorrhages. And I, I'd seen one too many of those. And I thought, if we could catch these people in a pharmacy at 2 a.m. when they're getting off of their third job, and we could actually pick up on that NVD, we might actually save their vision and help everybody. So I actually thought that was the fall of 2007 is when I came up with the idea for a binocular retinal OCT system that would be placed in a pharmacy for people to use 24 hours a day. You know, they buy a $10 card from the counter and stick it in there and it would actually refer them to a retina doctor if they had macular disease. So when I thought of that, that was, that was too compelling of an idea for me to, to, to purely do that in an academic environment. We tried, we actually started what's called an L3C, which is a, a hybrid between a 501C3 and an LLC at Doheny. We set up a company within the sort of uh, 501c3 construct to try to develop this instrument as a as a venture, but it, it just there was no way to really make that work. So the transition from academics to the industry was a slow transition for me, but it was kind of inevitable given the what I saw as the power of these ideas to help the world. So initially, it was going to be an academic project, and you found that the reality was to take it the full distance, you had to spin it out. And we've heard this before from others, and it's sort of my bias. Maybe it's the American capitalist machine sort of teaching me how, I, how to bring things along. But do you think it's possible to bring along a product like this the whole way in an academic center? Is it even possible? Well, I think there are a couple barriers. One, probably the, the biggest barrier I found is whenever I went to talk to a company about a partnership or a potential future collaboration, um, they, they first of all would say, do you have the authority to negotiate this on behalf of the university? But the second most important question was, what's the intellectual property status? Because if the intellectual property <clears throat> is held by the university, we don't want any part of it. And it, 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 you know, it's just, it was very hard for some of these companies to negotiate license agreements with some universities. And they were so um, once bitten, twice shy about that, that if we had university-based IP, they just didn't want to touch it. So that was one problem. And then, you know, the fundraising problem is, is really a challenge because you can get gifts given to universities, but equity investments are a whole different thing. And, you know, to the kind of funding you need for a project like this is hard to get purely from NIH and from private donors. So, I, you know, bringing in money in the right, uh, using the right vehicles to launch the product and then having partners have faith that you're 
intellectual property and the foundation of the invention is a monetizable thing in the future. Those were challenges and we did not overcome them. And so that's why I just had to leave and, and go out and to, to start it privately because there was no way to push it forward in university. Others may succeed. It's not, you know, my failure doesn't mean everyone else fails, but I ran into a lot of the same problems that other people do. And I think it's very hard to launch these things within a university context. So is it fair to say at that time, did, when you formed Envision, it was called Envision, I'm assuming from the beginning, Envision Diagnostics, did they have to, they, you, have to license the IP from USC? Did USC originally own the IP and then there was a licensing agreement in the early days? Well, there was a complicated arrangement between the Doheny Institute and USC that had a collaboration and the, there was an IP sharing agreement. I won't go into the details, but fortunately, Doheny, uh, USC allowed Doheny to lead. But I, I, I negotiated a license agreement personally when I left. This was I licensed the IP myself. I had to pay for it. And, um, but that allowed me then when I started the company to license the IP to the company. Um, as opposed to Envision Diagnostics having to go license it from Doheny. So I was the intermediary. I'm sure there are other ways to do that. But in this case, I licensed the IP myself and then licensed it to the company when I set up the company. Totally understood. That makes sense. That's actually a pretty unique story. But the licensing part always becomes part of the challenge going through the tech transfer. And and I do think the vast majority of drugs and devices ultimately make their way out through this same process or a similar process. Let's talk a little bit about the device itself. We'll get a little more current. Um, how did those early versions, your early conceptualization of the device, and I, I didn't know that about the the um, retail because that has been talked about with your device now, and we may come back to this. How did that early conceptualization then evolve into what it is now? And maybe you can spend a little more time on telling us what it is now, the tests it does, how it does them, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it is an interesting evolution of the idea, because one, one of the problems that I saw with fundus photo screening, which is another area that I researched for many years in academics, was that patients felt that they were getting an eye exam when really all they were having was a macular exam and they could have glaucoma, they could have cataracts, they could have any other number of diseases in the eye that were missed. And I realized the same problem was gonna exist with our retinal OCT. We're just gonna take a small picture, we're gonna miss glaucoma, we're gonna miss cataracts. And so I started to think, how could we mitigate that? And actually the original patent involved um, surrogate ways of detecting cataracts and other things. But uh, about a month or two after I thought of the binocular OCT idea, I realized that if we could image the front of the eye, we could solve all those problems as well. And so the evolution of an anterior-posterior OCT came about because I wanted to be able to see the angle and the lens and the cornea uh, and the pupil. And when you enable that, you have the ability now to do all these exams. I thought, we can measure the pupils, we can measure motility. So it was, I remember it was right before Arvo uh, of 2018, I'm sorry, uh, 2008. And I was just almost every day, I was thinking of more tests we could do with anterior OCT. And I went to Arvo and started talking to all my friends about it. And they thought I had lost my mind because it did, <laughs> had never even, OCT can't do that. So, um, so that, you know, that was one piece of it um, that sort of started the idea of the whole eye exam being encapsulated in this instrument instead of just retinal OCT. But between 2008 and 2010, I traveled around the world to try to get 
interest uh, from other countries and foundations. Uh, you know, I actually spent a lot of time in China and India because that's where I saw the root of the the problem being in the future of eye care. I thought all these diabetics in India are going to need early detection and treatment and same thing in rural China. So why not go there and try to raise money from foundations? So I met with Welcome Trust, Hilton Foundation, Gates Foundation, and I am obviously not a very good salesman because I was totally unsuccessful at convincing them. And I had one person look me in the eye and say, trachoma is more important than diabetic retinopathy in India. And I said, I would 20 years ago, I would absolutely agree with you. But right now, this is a problem. Yeah. And, and I just I didn't have a lot of success. And I was able to find a friend of our families who basically said to me, if it's too risky to do screening, look, there are no screening models out there. The, the pharmacy idea is great, but how are you going to pay for it? How, you know, show me the model that where this works and we know how to build a business on that. And same thing with Asia. Show me how you can build a device here and protect the intellectual property in Asia and launch a profitable business there. And he said, if, if you are willing to focus first on the markets that we know, Europe, America, and industrialized Asia, then I'll help you start the company. So I had this choice. I had this choice of whether I was going to keep um, pursuing this dream of a screening instrument in an environment that was not pro-screening at the time and in countries where I was unfamiliar with a lot of the, the systems and the way they worked, or whether I was going to go for a clinical instrument that could be used first in clinics in the industrialized world and then eventually move to the developing world. So I chose that because we actually had a path forward. And he believed that business model was good. And, um, and so he was our early supporter in the instrument. That's how we launched the company. And in the early days, I'm sure there were a few tests. Now there are many tests, or maybe they were all from the beginning. What, what are the tests that you – let's go right to now. So what are the tests that you have inside this one box? I know it's a all-in-one. We've Some people who are listening may be familiar with you and the product. It's a eye exam sort of start to finish, including all IOCT, but maybe a little more specifically than that. What are the tests, and how is it actually – used in the clinic yeah so it's a so as you said it's a binocular oct instrument which is a sort of first of its kind it measures both eyes at once and it does whole ioct so it images the front middle and back of the eye i'd say all the way from the eyelashes to the choroid um and it's swept source oct so you know that that's the, the foundation technology is allowing you to image the entire eye at every exam you know in retina we, we've seen the benefits of being able to look back at prior exams. You can't do that with a slit lamp and you can't make quantitative measurements with a slit lamp. And there's so many shortcomings to the slit lamp. This is something that I'm convinced will replace the slit lamp. And I, when I, I started giving talks on OCT biomicroscopy back in 2009, and it was treated somewhat as blasphemy back then. But I think now people are recognizing that there's a real opportunity here. Um, so the foundation is, is binocular whole IOCT. But um, I think the, the real novel thing about it is that we use OCT to make other measurements. So I think that the goal for the instrument is to have an automated device that does essentially what our technicians would do, but without the need to have a technician asking for letters and trying to estimate pupil sizes with a muscle light. And, and you know, the 
human beings are not very good at making those kinds of measurements. There's a, there's a layer of interpretation. There's a, a lot of subjectivity and variability. Um, and, and as you know, you know, a lot of the data we get back is poor in quality. So the idea is to have OCT make these measurements objectively, repeatedly, reproducibly every single time, no matter where you are. So if you get an MRI in China and you come to the U.S. and get an MRI in the same machine, you can compare those exams head to head. It's so easy to do that. But in ophthalmology, you and I in the same practice can't compare slit lamp exams because we do them differently. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to standardize how we capture data and then to do the tests that doctors need. So the most common uh, exam done in the U.S. is a comprehensive eye exam, the 92014 exam. And that has requirements of measuring vision and confrontation visual fields and motility and, and alignment. So we tried to build our core exam around the most common exam that doctors do that would allow them to get the entire workup done automatically without having to en- enroll en- enlist technicians to do that. The technicians can come in the further in the back office and help them take care of patients. You don't need a human being asking, you know, TZVE. So this is a, a device that, that really does the tests fundamentally that we need for our most common eye exams, but then can be extended to do almost any test that you can imagine in the eye, be it static or kinetic perimetry, um, contrast sensitivity, color vision. Most of the devices in our clinic are the same. There's some kind of input unit. There's a power unit. There is uh, some logic involved in it. When you, if you took them all apart, they would all have the same basic components. Yet somehow we ask device companies to make them all separate devices. It doesn't make sense. Just like a smartphone has changed the way the number of devices we carry with us, a single device can use the same hardware platform to do all these tests and software. That was the fundamental idea that allows us to do visual acuity, auto refraction, you know, confrontation fields, motility, pupillometry, color vision. But as you know, the list goes on to 50 or 60 tests, but you do it all in one instrument in one place so the patient doesn't have to move. You know, if I'm a, as you know, I see a lot of AMD and, you know, my patients are sometimes elderly and slow and it's, it's not easy to move these patients around from screening room to OCT to other places. You put them once in front of the machine, turn it on, let them do their exam and leave. Six minutes later, the whole thing is done. You don't have to move them or put them in a sub waiting room. It's a more efficient way of doing eye care. And you know, I think if a systems engineer came into our clinics to look at how we run things, they would tear their hair out because we, you know, we need to bring more lean processes into what we're doing. And this is a step in that direction. I think there are other ways to do it, but certainly we're, you know, it's one of the things we try to do is streamline the visit process. So the visits are faster, patients are happier, and we get better data. There's no question about your uh, systems engineer comment. Actually, just in the most plain terms, I have had patients over the years come through, and these are smart people who might not be systems engineers, but they're even semi-technologically aware, and they watch this process and then endure it themselves over the amount of minutes to hours that it takes and the moving from room to room. And the word that keeps coming to mind for me is it's so linear, and they see that. And in an era where they can go on their iPhone and solve 
myriad problems all at once with several screens open at the same time, like booking a reservation and calling someone. We're still moving, you know, 90 year olds from room to room. It is really linear and we're laughing about it, but it's just too slow. It's too old fashioned. We have to move on from this if we're ever going to service the tens of millions of patients we're going to service, which we'll come to shortly with new new drugs that we'll talk about. Um, Yeah. I think helps to solve this problem. How do you view this device then in the in the hands of a practicing ophthalmologist or optometrist, retina or otherwise, and how they will incorporate it into their practice and how it will help them? Your comment about linearity is right on point. I, you know, when we ask our technician to take a patient to a screening room, that technician is now tied up for that entire process. And then they move them on one at a time. And when you look at lean manufacturing processes, one of the ways to decrease your cycle time is to parallelize processes. So once you take the technician out of that room, you know, our instrument can be put in that room, but the technician loads the patient on that instrument and then walks out. That technician is now free to do other things. And that one technician can put people on three different instruments at once. So now you've got one person doing the work of three technicians and our machine doesn't take vacation, eat lunch or go to the bathroom. So our machine has full duty cycle. So, you know, our machine can easily see 40 or 50 people a day. Um, And it's, you know, you can run three of them at once. So with one sort of concierge level technician and three machines, you could easily work up 150 patients a day. With one one technician, name a technician who can do that. N- none of our super techs do that. So, so parallelization is is a really key part of this. And trying to remove any kind of waiting or uh, latent periods or waiting periods, um, it's really important. But as you said, every doctor is going to want to use this a little differently, and and we don't want people to have to change their behavior in order to use this instrument. I, we're, none of us are good at changing our behavior. Um, my wife reminds me of that all the time. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I think depending on, I'll make some stereotypes here, but, you know, for, um, for an optometrist um, who's got a, a set uh, pre-test workup that they do and then time spent with the patient where they'd rather have them in an optical shop or they'd rather have time uh, to work with them on the things that really matter to them. I I feel like boiling this down into a small square footage, you know, instrument, this is just two by two square feet where it does everything in a small space because they pay for expensive retail space. Um, Doing things like subjective refraction and auto refraction, that's wavefront auto refraction for them, giving um, lots of data so that they can manage complex medical diseases that they may not see every day. You know, every one of my patients has AMD or advanced diabetes. But I imagine optometry sees a smaller percentage of uh, advanced AMD. But with an instrument like ours, they have all the tools that every retina specialist has, and they can do complex evaluations no matter who walks in the door. And and, and for some optical um, uh, companies, they don't want to have an optometrist at every location all the time. So this helps them um, diversify their, their coverage for eye exams. So I think in the on the front lines, be it comprehensive ophthalmology, optometry, um, there are a lot of advantages to having an all-in-one device that gives great data. But you know, for in the tertiary care and and, and subspecialty offices like ours, um, you know, 
we just have an army of people, as you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a sea of people and devices. And it's not, as you said, it's not lost in our patients. Um, they go see their internist and there's one nurse and then the internist walks in the room and they, they come see us and they can't keep the name straight because there are six or seven people to interact with. So for us, it's a matter of streamlining our operations, decreasing our payroll if we can, or you know, more importantly, taking the, the text that we can't live without and bringing them closer to us. We all have those people that um, that know our patients and know our patterns, and we we trust to counsel patients and help us set up for procedures. That's what we want. We want a technician to help us deliver care, not sit in a screening room and do things that a human being isn't required to do. So I think for the tertiary care person, it's more about efficiency and labor reduction, um, and, and also good numbers. We don't we don't get the best visions. Uh, this instrument can give clinical trials level data on every single patient. And I think that's something we should be demanding. We spend three times as much on labor as we do on devices. And we just accept that as the cost of doing business. And I, you know, I, I hope that people, at least from looking at ventures like this, will get the idea that they need to start demanding more from device companies. Give us automated devices. Help us with the problems that really plague us, such as, you know, labor. It's hard to hire people. It's hard to retain good people. Um, And the device companies have been slow to do that because doctors haven't asked loudly enough for it. It's a bit like moving from gas vehicles to electric vehicles. You got to have the right pressure on the industry to get what you want. And if we all banded together as ophthalmologists and said, we need fewer people and, and better machines and better data, I think the device industry would respond. Uh, you're so right, and uh, you. <laughs> I, I sort of semi laughed when you said no bathroom break, no lunch, no vacation, and I thought immediately myself and Dave Boyer. So I think their doctors too could yep. use a little break and help from the linearity. Uh, we, we're suffering under the, this mighty volume, and to that point, the the the, the HR shortages that we have now are tremendous. I know you and I have talked about this at Retina Vitreous. We've been essentially hiring 24-7. The door is always open since uh, even before the pandemic, but most certainly after the pandemic. I think in your travels now and in, in researching what practices are doing and helping you to develop this device, you've seen a drastic shortage of HR uh, availability for ophthalmology. Is that right? Yeah, the, the great resignation is is plaguing us all. And it it's one thing if you run a fast food restaurant and have trouble retaining employees. But for us, you know, we have to train them. And once they develop some proficiency in what they do, if they leave the following week, we just lost all that work. So we are constantly hiring, we're training, and then they're leaving and we're hiring again. And it affects the quality of our data. My patients don't like it. They, are, they see new faces all the time. And this person doesn't seem to know what they're doing. And they lose faith in me because you know, the, the, the people that they interact with in the office are so important in that and the visit quality. So it, I think it hurts us all when we don't have a, you know, a stable, high quality system that we can rely on consistently between visits because patients notice it and we certainly notice it in our data quality. I want to stay on the data topic, but turn a little bit to the broader picture and the the broader, quote, big data discussion. And uh, again, you and I have talked about this. Everyone's talked about this in recent months and years. Uh, Doctors in decision making, uh, big pharma in, in deciding how to promote or use their products most effectively, device companies, 
Everyone's interested in big data, insurance companies, federal payer system, and the big data, so to speak, at least I can speak for ophthalmology, thus far has been pretty poor. I, I No offense to my friends who are in that line of work, but the heterogeneity of the data of the, of the EMR systems, of the poor quality technical information being put in by the, the human tech who may not know how to take a proper visual acuity, all this adds up to really pretty poor big data. How do you see this product and this kind of homogeneity of information helping in this regard? Yeah, I, I think, as you said, it, it's, it isn't any one particular group or person's fault. It's just the, the source is noisy and, and sometimes just low quality. And everything that stems from that ends up suffering from that quality problem. I think the big data potential to, to move the field forward um, is tremendous, and we are we're not taking advantage of it because we're providing such poor data. We have some of the worst data, I believe, in medicine. There are some <laughs> other fields that are a little more subjective, but I mean, can you imagine if your doctor told you your cholesterol was mild, moderate, or severe, or you know your, plus your blood sugar, <laughs> yeah, one plus, two plus, or three plus? We we <laughs> cannot keep using these assessments. Um, you know, internists have blood tests. It, it, they have blood pressure. They have, they have quantitative results. And and in defense of our industry, yes, we now have structural imaging, but on the functional side, it's it's very poor. So, you know, I, I think there are a couple aspects to data that. Um, need to be fixed in order for us to take greatest advantage of this. And one is the quality of the data needs to be improved. And um, even clinical trials struggle to get good quality data. Uh, they do the best job you know, of any of us, but it's a, a great cost. We need clinical trial quality data in our clinical operations, I believe. And an instrument like ours, you know, we, we measure hundreds and thousands of measurements in a six-minute exam that and when our techs give us two or three. To give, just to give you an example, and I don't want to digress too much, but when we measure vision, we also measure the time it takes for someone to respond to each letter. Because we know as clinicians that when you're testing someone and they read TZVE, you know that person's 20-20. But when someone's struggling, um, you know, I think that's a T... Uh, that might be, you know, they're, they're both going to get 2020, but one person's having a lot more trouble than the other. So just, you know, the, the surrogate reading speed measure of time of response is a very useful thing. We can measure letter confusion, whether you're confusing an F and a P or an L and an X. That really, it depends on your disease. Uh, your best fixation stability comes when you're looking at a 2020 letter. We measure the fixation of the eye when you're looking at the smallest letter, and that is the best fixation you will ever get out of a patient. So if you want to know someone's maximum fixation stability, you do it on the smallest letter they can read. So there are all these measurements that not only do you measure visual acuity well, but you make sure you measure everything about the eye when it's happening, and it gives us tremendous surrogate measures that we can use across all of our disease studies to improve our um, description of the phenotype. We, we poorly describe the disease phenotype. This allows us to describe it better. So one aspect of data is the quality of the data. The other aspect is the sharing of the data. And you know, HIPAA 
which is a, a very good rule to protect our patients, puts up necessary barriers and it prevents data sharing. So it's, you know, we all have been in the situation where we get a faxed OCT from some a referring doctor and it's just black and you can't see anything that they saw that day. And, you know, oh, did so-and-so send the records? Uh, no, I, I don't see those records. They haven't arrived yet. Um, that's not a good way to take care of people. So, you know, in an instrument like ours, we actually de-identify all the data and we share it so that patients now can control who sees the data and they can share their data with every doctor. The, the patients have access to it. Um, once you break down the barriers with and you give them high quality data, my hope is that they'll be able to aggregate all their data from every provider and share it with every provider so that when they walk into your clinic for the first time, you get all the exams from every eye doctor they've seen before you. And you have that entire history in front of you in making a decision about them, as opposed to having them fill out some record transfer and it comes in two months and you can't read it. So, you know, I think that that data sharing is important and data quality is important. We can do better on both. We're trying our own way and I know other companies are trying too, but um, it's, it's a hill we have to climb in order to make progress in the field of ophthalmology. It's incredible, actually, when I hear it phrased the way you correctly phrase it. It's almost embarrassing that this is how we handle record keeping. And it's universally true that the patient comes in, has done their diligence to get the records sent before they come. And unequivocally, that's the discussion that happens. And we're covering our tracks like, well, it didn't really come and we don't have it. <laughs> and it's it's worthless. And that's sad in the current state of you know the world of technology. We should be doing better with this and a million other things. I'm glad that you're trying to tackle that. This has become somewhat of a software discussion, which is well outside of my skill set. But in that regard, does this incorporate AI for next level sort of data analysis then too, for let's say aggregate decision-making by doctors and or drug companies, insurance companies, et cetera, about, about healthcare? Yeah, you know, AI is a really important and enormous topic to talk about. Uh, it's inevitable now um, that this is going to impact our field. And um, I remember at one of our conferences, I gave a talk on AI right after Google published their paper um, where they could identify the gender of the subject from a fundus photo, which is something we can't do as clinicians. And, it, and that's when I said, you know, we finally have passed the, the mark where uh, machines will be able to do things that we can't. Uh, I think right now they're kind of on par with us, but uh, very, very soon they will surpass us. And we need to make sure that that's a good thing for patient care. So um, when it comes to diagnostic interpretation, uh, we were talking before this about, you know, GA and what's happening with all the exciting new potential therapies in GA. It's possible that AI will play an important role in assessing um, structure and progression of disease in GA. And, you know, one of the challenges there is, is how do you standardize that across all these device companies? We all have different OCT machines. How do we get the same answer out of all of them? And do we have to, you know, hire some service online to do it? Um, we've taken a different approach. We actually do AI right on our machine. I think we might be the only machine that does inference on the device itself. And that's, um, 
that's a, something we need to do. We've been doing that for a couple of years, but I think it has some advantages. But however we do it, we're going to need to incorporate AI into our practice in real time. But then the next phase of it is how does AI interact with our data systems to help us make discoveries and take better care of patients? And again, having that central high quality data set is going to be a key piece of AI discoveries. And I think that that will take us to the next level in new diagnoses. At, at the beginning of this, I talked about how OCT um, ushered in you know, the, the, the diagnosis of vitreo macular traction. I think there are dozens of diseases of the eye that we're missing right now that AI is gonna show us what they are. And it's not gonna name them for us, but it's gonna say, look, this pattern of abnormalities, this is a syndrome, and, and we're gonna look at the pathophysiology and say, okay, this is actually a disease that we've been missing all along. So that's exciting. And, and I think we need to figure out the best ways to use that to take better care of patients. And for us to, to forward our understanding of the pathophysiology of eye disease. So AI is, is going to be with us now for the remainder of time um, and may, may one day replace us. I'm not so worried about it replacing you as a retinal surgeon, um, but it might replace a lot of our interpretation, which in some ways might be a good thing. As I said, one plus two plus three plus is not the future. And if AI can help us get past that, then we need to work as hard as we can on it. It's inevitable. Uh, the, <laughs> it'll be like a, a modern day times a million Don Gass, right? <laughs> Finding associated symptoms or signs across thousands of people that just picks up a few and then boom, a new entity. Uh, you know, amazing how he did that without AI, actually. Well, it's funny. I was just talking to Praveen about this at lunch on Sunday. Can you imagine if Don Gass had had OCT? Don yeah, Gass I, made observations nobody else could before OCT. If Don Gass had had OCT, we probably would have solved lots of diseases by now. And, and then, you know, AI... I, 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 that would be a super intelligence. I think it might actually be too much, but um, that is the goal is to, is to give Don gas level interpretive capabilities to everybody in eye care, uh, whether you're on the front lines or the back line. Um, we all need those same tools. There, as you said, the demand for eye care in the future is going to be so big. It's all hands on deck right now, as far as I'm concerned. We need to arm everybody with advanced tools to allow them to evaluate complex diseases at the highest standards of care in order for us to be able to differentiate who needs therapy and who doesn't. And, and, you know, if, if we're going to be injecting more people, I don't know how we're going to do that. Our, our clinics are already overloaded, as you've pointed out many times, and we can't take on 10 times as many people. So we've got to figure out a better way of delivering care and, and hopefully AI will be the tool at just the right time to help us do that. I'm glad you uh, brought this part of it up with OCT and try AMD. I, I, I spoke with, and he was on the podcast, I think it's airing or about to air with Ron Polanki. And we, he elaborated on the early days of Lucentis and how OCT and wet AMD sort of grew up together hand in hand. And, and OCT's evolution exploded because of the evolving treatments of wet AMD and, and then late, shortly thereafter uh, DME. 
Yeah. I'm wondering now with the onset, we're, we're coming near term for dry AMD treatments. It's going to be an explosion of patient volumes coming in, maybe 10x over the wet AMD numbers, if you believe, you know, the historical epidemiological statistics. Do you see this or other devices exploding onto the scene in the same way that we de determined or de developed a dependency on OCT for that binary treat, not treat kind of question that we use now for wet AMD? You get the point. Oh, it's a really profound point. And, and I'll give a little personal background, maybe too much disclosure here, but my father is a urologist and he developed the modern surgery for prostate cancer, which spared the nerves and, and prevented impotence after surgery. That surgery would not have become so commonplace had it not been for the invention of PSA. So PSA became the tool we use to detect prostate cancer and the treatment was this minimally invasive prostate surgery. So urologists in 1980 did maybe three or four prostatectomies a year. And by 1990, my father was doing 500 or 600 a year. So, um, you know, it's, it's uh, the pairing of therapies and diagnostics is essential to both delivery of care, but also to the success of the therapies. And your, your point about um, wet AMD is perfect. Without OCT, can you imagine how we would have detected subretinal fluid? We would have been looking at subretinal hemorrhage. There would have been no way to ever pick up on subretinal fluid or the subtle CME that we treat. Um, and if we had detected it, but we couldn't treat it, well, actually, we, we knew that. We saw that back when all we had was PDT and, and, uh, and thermal laser. Um, you know, that, that was a hard time. So the pairing of those two things was really what allowed the anti-VEGF era to take off. And, and hopefully pharma recognizes this. Pharma needs to recognize that a therapy without a, an easily um, used and widely used diagnostic is going to be limited in its impact. And for them, it's revenue. But for us, it's improving vision. The standard of, of vision has gone up so far in wet AMD my patients, I used to tell them, move to a place where they could take the bus. And now 20 years in, they're trying to get their driver's license. And, you know, it's, it's a whole different world, which is wonderful. But when it comes to dry AMD, we don't have the smoking gun. Well, I should say intermediate AMD. Intermediate AMD, we don't have the smoking gun that we have with subretinal fluid or CME. Um, this is a disease that's very hard to phenotype right now. Um, Rick Ferris tried to, to make it really simple for us all. And even with a simplified ARID scale, we did a pretty poor job of staging people with intermediate AMD. So, you know, I, I feel like um, there is work to be done here. And my hope is that pharma will rise to the occasion because this is to the benefit of them and their shareholders. But as practitioners, it's actually to the benefit of our patients. Uh, look what happened in wet AMD. If we could do the same thing in an easy way, with dry macrodegeneration, can you imagine what a wonderful world it would be? I sound like I'm singing a song, but you know, if we have you know a topical dry MD therapy that we can diagnose and know exactly when to implement it, even an injectable if it's infrequent, I, you know, I think this is these are real opportunities to help people before they lose vision, and um, but the, the diagnostics aren't there yet. So, um, and, and I think that again, getting back to AI, the way to do this is with AI. Uh, that that trial, you know, where they they showed that they could tell the gender of the patient, um, that was really instructive to me. I looked back at the literature, and Francois Delory, one of the fathers of, of laser lasers in the eye and spectroscopy and spectrometry in the eye, 
did a study in, in uh, a few years before looking at whether macular pigment was different between men and women. And after spending a lot of time working on this, his conclusion was probably it was just barely statistically significant that macular pigment was different in men than women. When you look at the Google result, it was absolutely clear. The heat map showed a difference in the macular pigment between men and women. So if we're going to develop diagnostics, we can't do it through small trials of existing instrumentation. We need, we need real world data at scale. We need tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of eyes using experimental diagnostics to figure out the best way to phenotype intermediate AMD. That's when we'll, we'll truly be successful. Um, and I, I hope we're going to get there. We, you know, with with the right technology applied to this problem, I'm not afraid. I know we can get there. It's just if we keep trying to pull the same tools out of our box, if we go and get our issue hard color plates out of the drawer and expect that that's going to give us an answer when it's used for you know male inherited color blindness, that's not the answer to the to these big questions. And we all need to come together, pharma and technology companies, to solve these problems because it will result in better vision for our patients and an even higher bar for our 90 year old patients who are going to be complaining about 2025 vision. So maybe the future isn't so bright if you know if, if we've got people who set the bar so high, but. I, I personally would enjoy that conversation than, than the one where I know that they're going to lose vision no matter what I do. We'll have to develop a retina premium lens uh, analog. We can talk about <laughs> that separately. It has been bounced around, you know, for years. Right. Final uh, area, this is it fits into what we were just talking about, specifically with regard to the device, you, you, the Envision device. Where is it in the stage of development right now? And is this a 510K pathway? And, and if you could, uh, have you had some clinical testing? Yeah, so um, it, uh, we've had some discussions with FDA, and it's, it's premature to declare anything before they agree with your assessment. But this is an OCT device. And they have, uh, they've very smartly um, set out guidance for multiple function medical device products. And uh, that allows companies to do multiple things on a device, uh, some of which may not be as complicated as other things without making the whole thing complicated, both for FDA and the company. So you know, we do a lot of class one uh, level testing on our device. And the hope is that this will be an OCT, you know, uh, approval with some, um, you know, class two data submission, and then a lot of class one functionality that can be added uh, in the future um, without uh, putting a, a long FDA process uh, in between us and getting to the, the customer. So, yeah, we, you know, we've been at this for 11 years. Um, it's a long road. This is a, you know, high tech, complicated device. It's you know, swept source, light sources are just, you know, recently stabilized. And so everything's kind of coming together now. We're trying to get through, get our first 510K submitted by the end of next year. Um, but it's been a long road. And and we have done testing. We, you know, we did some testing in, in LA. We've done a little testing overseas. It was great to, to run this device on retina clinic patients and see people with severe eye disease and how well they do on a device like this and how acceptable it was. We thought that there'd be a aversion to technology. It was the opposite. Um, they actually felt more confident in this workup than the tech workups um, just because it was this precise device. So we have done, we've tested several hundred patients now and, and had very good repeatability and, um, and very good clinical results. So our hope is that we'll be able to get through our FDA process in a reasonable timeframe 
and then bring the instrument to the clinical marketplace, which is its own challenge. It's hard to launch devices. Um, and uh, it, it takes money. It takes time. takes a lot of dedication. We got a great team, but it is, uh, it is a long road and, and still uncertainties ahead. Yeah, but uh, I think that the need and the, the marketability anyway, as a practicing busy <laughs> retina doctor slash ophthalmologist uh, seems a no-brainer. I, I think I, I'm, I'm wishing for you to get this done and to get it done as quickly as possible because I do think the volume of patients we're trying to see and the quality of information we're getting on the standard workup that we see 70 times in a day in our clinics or 50 or 80 it's terrible and we need to be much much better much much faster more efficient i'm congratulating you on on getting this far and you're really close and i hope you do get to the fda approval as soon as possible because i think there's a lot of ophthalmologists for sure that know this product that are eagerly anticipating using it literally right away to streamline their practices. I hope it gets through quickly. I congratulate you. And again, Dr. Alex Walsh, my good buddy and the CEO and founder of Envision Diagnostics. Thank you, Alex, for coming on. Thanks for inviting me for us. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening to the OIS podcast. Tune in next week as we chat science, medicine, and industry with ophthalmology's leading experts. Visit OIS.net for more information on podcasts, events, and exciting new features. 